Um, so, hello, good morning. Uh, the scripture reading today is coming from uh, Genesis 41, uh, verses 37 uh, to 57, and uh, hear now the very word of God. Joseph rises to power. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you, as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his, in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all, all the food of the seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the field around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is God's word. Jesus tells a parable about a man who scatters good seed in his field. Now, the man must have had quite a field because he has workers. Uh, and as Jesus tells the parables, while uh, the owner of the field and the workers are sleeping, an enemy of the owner of the fielder comes in and sows into the field weeds, some kind of harmful plant. Uh, and, you know, you don't know that that happens. And so uh, while it doesn't spell it out in the parable, presumably the workers continue to, to feed the soil and water it and tend to it uh, and take care of it because their job is to, to raise up the wheat that's been planted. But, but when the wheat starts to come out, these weeds come out as well. This is alarming. This is concerning. At this point, the weeds are in there everywhere. So the workers go to the owner and they report this, and it's interesting because this is a parable, not a lesson on farming. Uh, Jesus says an enemy did this. Someone, you know, it, it, the parable is clear. The, the seed that was sown is good, 
but an enemy has come and put something harmful in here. And now all this work we've been doing is producing not just good, but something that's actually harmful and undermining the good. And so the workers understandably want to know what to do. Their suggestion, let's root out all the weeds. And the answer is don't do that, presumably because under the soil, the uh, the roots are intertwined. And so if you pull out the weeds, you pull out the wheat as well. And so, so the lesson of the parable is you, you, these, these are going to coexist for a period until the end. At the harvest, there will be a separating out. But in the meantime, um, again, it's not a farming lesson. So maybe there should have been things they could do on cutting the weeds or managing terrible and harmful. And how do we make sense of it? And we come up with our own narratives and we tell each other stories and the narratives often tap into something true. It may, it may resonate with something in God's redemptive story. Um, and sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's contrary, but often it, it taps into something true, but, but is insufficient. So our stories wind up giving us some sense of what's going on, some motivation to keep going, some hope, uh, but, but they're rarely, or I would say if they're not fully the biblical story, they're not redemptive stories. They're stories that offer us something. We're looking at the Joseph story, which within the Bible is a redemptive story. It's a picture within the grander story of, of how God works. And it's a wonderful story in that regard. Today, as we look at this, uh, uh, this wonderful moment in Joseph's life, where after chapters and chapters we've been reading of him suffering, now things are turning around and it's, it's this wonderful moment. And in it, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on some of the kinds of stories that we tell, some of the stories we hear. So the first one is the success story. So uh, this is a particular story that resonates in New York, but it captures the imaginations of lots of people. The, the narrative that we could see elements of even in this story. Afterwards, Joseph is wise. He's hardworking. He's skilled. He's diligent. And it winds up paying off. And it's kind of a good story because of all, all the opposition to him, all the unfairness, uh, all of the things that were pushing against him. Um, but here it, he is, he achieves success, a title, um, notability, honor. And that story is a compelling story, the success story. It's one that captures our imaginations and we want to be true. Now, what's interesting is, is even Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who's the one conferring all this on, on, on Joseph, in verse 39, Pharaoh says to his servants, as, as Pharaoh's about to appoint Joseph uh, to this high position after Joseph has interpreted his dreams and given him an idea of what to do with it, Pharaoh said to his servants, verse 39, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, that's very important for the reader because throughout the Joseph story, it's clear that all that's happening, all the good that's happening is because God is with Joseph. This is a redemptive story because of God being at work in the midst of it, not because Joseph is uh, particularly meant to be our role model. So Pharaoh even acknowledges, because Joseph was clear when, when uh, Pharaoh asked about his dreams, well, me, it's God. So there's this acknowledgement that God's at work, and Pharaoh commendably seems to note that. And yet, um, the, the success, the bigness, the power, the, the glory of Egypt seems to take over a lot of this narrative. So if we were to make a Hollywood movie on the life of Joseph, um, this chapter that we're looking at today could be a great climactic ending, right? That would be a story that would encourage people. It would, it would have elements of redemption. Now, of course, the story doesn't end here. And the story goes on where, 
where there's a number of details that come together that are so surprising, powerful, profound that show that the story is not just about Joseph or not just about Egypt, but it's about something bigger God is doing over generations that, that we follow throughout the Bible. Um, but if you said, well, I don't, I'm not necessarily concerned about that. I just want a, a good, encouraging, helpful story to help me to know how to live well. This chapter would be a good culmination because it is a rags to riches story about a guy who is at the bottom, unfairly treated. And now look, he's, he's at the top. And so verse 40, Pharaoh, the king, the most powerful individual says, only as regards the throne, will I be greater than you? So first of all, second in charge, that's really good in this big empire. But even Pharaoh's language, only as regards the throne, almost as if he's saying it's symbolic, which wasn't the case. But there's really a sense in which this is a success story. Now, the problem within the success narrative is people that are really type A driven don't like the silver medal. <laughs> so Joseph is still not the gold medalist. So maybe it's not a satisfying success story. But for me, that's really good. You know, he goes from the pit to now only as regards the throne is Pharaoh greater than him. That is success. And, and, and there are redemptive moments or, or aspects of the story. So you read verses 42 to 43, and you think about what Joseph has been through. And it says that Pharaoh puts a signet ring on Joseph's hand. So these hands, these ordinary hands now have the power of the king uh, to, you know, to speak with authority, his seal. He clothes him in garments of fine linen. So remember the Joseph story, he has this beautiful robe that his father had made from him that's stripped from him and bloodied and used as a false witness to his father to say that Joseph has been killed. But now there's a restoration, these fine Egyptian garments. He now, he now looks like royalty. Pharaoh puts a chain around his neck, but it's a gold chain. You know, Joseph was a slave and I don't know how they kept their slaves confined, but in much of history, it was with chains and shackles uh, that dishonor. Now he has an honorable chain around his neck, a sign of freedom, of power. Um, Pharaoh makes him ride in his second chariot. Keep in mind, uh, Joseph was carted off from his own land by the Ishmaelites, put, put on a cart and brought with humiliation to Egypt. Now he rides within Egypt in a chariot, a sign of power and strength. Uh, and then uh, they're instructed to call it bow the knee. You know, Joseph was in the lowest place. He was a servant. And now people, everyone, uh, everyone but Pharaoh will treat Joseph as though they're his servant. And then a final detail there, uh, the language of setting him over all of Egypt. That language is used twice there in verse 41 and verse 43. Now, keep in mind Joseph's story. Um, he was under the earth. He was thrown in a pit by his, by his family. <laughs> so he was literally below the earth. And now figuratively, he's above all the land of Egypt. He's over the earth. This is a wonderful picture of, of a turnaround of somebody who suffered miserably, but then has been shown kindness by God, and there's prosperity, and there's blessing, and many of us would say, show the credits. <laughs> what a great story, and it is a great story. We should pause and give thanks, given what Joseph has gone through. But you know, um, the success story is a good story. It's a compelling story, but it's not a redemptive story. And in a world with wheat and weeds, yes, we still need to work hard and we need to appreciate skill and we need to, to reward people and all of these elements. But you could see even within this story, there are hints that, that that's not really what this story is about. 
And, you know, in the different expressions of Christianity, one of the modern ones is sometimes termed the prosperity gospel. There are different forms of this, but there's a message that comes from some churches that says God wants to bless you. But that's true. There's nothing wrong with that message. God wants to prosper you. That's true. But there's a lot of concern about the prosperity gospel for a number of reasons. Some, I think, in their anger, just don't like such a positive message. Well, the problem is not that the prosperity gospel is positive, <laughs> that God wants to do good things. Um, it's, it's the promise of success that's not redefined biblically. It's the promise that, that the success you want as the world defines it, God will help you achieve that where, where then faithfulness to Christ becomes the dues that you pay in order to reap this reward. That's the very kind of reward Jesus warns us we shouldn't be seeking after. So, so your desire for a good life is good, but, but Jesus warns us enough about riches that if you think serving Jesus will make you rich, uh, then you've understood prospering in a faulty way, in, in, a, in now a problematic way. And so when we read the Joseph story, this is a wonderful moment that we should rejoice. Look, he has honor and power and dignity. All of those things are good, especially after what he suffered. But that's not the redemptive story. The redemptive story continues as we meet his family, as we find out what, how God uses this moment in the life of Jacob's descendants. But we find elements even here that Pharaoh, this particular Pharaoh, seems pretty commendable. He, he treats Joseph pretty fairly. And, and how do you honor someone? Well, the best he's, he knows, he gives him all of the trappings of Egypt. And so in verse 45, he gives him a new name and he gives him a wife in an important family. And so Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah. So now he has an Egyptian identity. So he doesn't just have clothing and the seal and the chariot, but he has a name. Again, that, that you could appreciate he's been welcomed in. He's been brought in, he's in, into the people of Egypt. Um, but right there, there's something about why this Hebrew person uh, couldn't have authority as he was. Um, his wife, Azanath, she's in this priestly family. Now, in a modern secular society, you know, where we maybe don't respect priestly kind of types, in ancient Egypt, this would have been, these were the wise, uh, this was a, a community of dignity. So his marrying into that family, but you know, Pharaoh says, if God is at work in you, I'm going to put you in the category of people uh, that are in tune with the divine. That seems well-intentioned and honorable. But, but Joseph is being contained in the categories of Egypt. <laughs> their model of success, their definition of power, their customs, uh, their appearance, their name, their family. And what's interesting is that as the story goes on, um, we find that, that Joseph he works within that system. So verse 47 to 49, 49 he gathers up food. He, he puts it into cities. He stores it up. Um, Joseph is working in Egypt. He puts on those clothes and he works for the good of Egypt in the same way that in New York City, um, most of you work for organizations that are, are, you know, are not necessarily religious or Christian organizations. And that's right. You put on your, if there's certain clothing that you wear for your particular work or certain kinds of customs, uh, we take that on. But there's always a danger that success is being redefined for us and it becomes a bit of a trap. And we find that for Joseph, um, on the one hand, he's renamed. But what's interesting is that never again in the Bible do we hear that name that's read, that Egyptian name. He's given that name, um, and he's given a wife, Azneth. Oddly enough, we don't read about her either, even though her children, Azneth's children, Ephraim and Manasseh, become 
the tribes of Israel. There's, there's Egyptian DNA now in, this, in, in the tribe of Ephraim, the, 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 one of the chief tribes in Israel. So this is profound in terms of, of Joseph's um, new identity within Egypt. But it's interesting in verse 55, Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. Now, is that because Pharaoh um, kept calling him Joseph? Did Joseph say, thanks for the new name, but my name is Joseph? Um, that we don't know, but we know Joseph gave his own children Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. And whether or not Pharaoh was actually calling him Joseph or the narrator has just captured it that way for us, the message from the narrator is this is still Joseph. This is still the descendant of Abraham that has God's name on him, God's blessing. And the danger is um, this story could end here where, where the impression is uh, God has blessed him by making him great in Egypt. But the interesting thing is for all the work that Joseph does for Egypt, as, as he now has taken on this Egyptian identity, it's for the salvation of Egypt that God uses for the salvation of his own family. And the impact is for generations. You know, Joseph consolidates power in Egypt so that the next generations now, um, you know, the, the Egyptian monarchy has more power than ever on the other side of this. And Joseph helped that. And the outworking of that is good but not many generations later. The book of Exodus, the next book, opens up, but there was a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So all of that investment Joseph made in consolidating power in Egypt, uh, several or many Pharaohs later, a new Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember his impact, doesn't care about his God, and looks at Joseph's family now growing, and the growth, the fruitfulness of Joseph's family within Egypt is no longer a sign of that time many years ago that Joseph and his God delivered us, but now it's threatening. And so Joseph spends all this time within the power structures of Egypt, strengthening it, and God uses that in a profound way for the humble in Egypt, for Joseph's family. But ultimately, those power structures will turn against Joseph and his descendants with coercion and violence. And so actually, there will be another incident with another Pharaoh where God shows up more directly as a greater power. And that's the problem with the success narrative. It's not redemptive because this kind of success, if it's just about titles, money, people bowing down before you, you know, you can imagine within this, we read it and we think this is wonderful for Joseph, but you can imagine the other people around Pharaoh thinking, who is this guy that came out of nowhere? And because he interpreted a dream, now all of a sudden we've served Pharaoh these last 25 years and he's more powerful than us. Within the success paradigm, you can be sure there was resentment and you can be sure all was not smooth for Joseph. And yet the problem is not with success. The problem is not with hard work. All of those things are good. The problem is we don't live within this redemptive narrative. There's something wrong within us. And then success becomes a trap. That at best, it, it fails to provide what, what a redemptive narrative needs to. But at worst, um, it so lacks those things that, that, that worldly success and power becomes such a problem for others. Um, some years ago, maybe, maybe it was three years ago, we had a speaker come and teach a class in Emmanuel. Some of you uh, may have attended the class, but he shared his story in the service. I imagine even if you were there, you might not remember it, but it might ring a bell for you. Um, his story was about a shift from, from being a somewhat superficial Christian to how he really um, was gripped by the gospel. And his superficial Christianity was he, he grew up in a Christian family. He was around the church. He was comfortable with Christianity from a cultural perspective. He got married. He married a woman who was committed to going to the church. And so he was involved in going to church. But his, 
his goals, his ambition, the framing of his life was geared around success. And the interesting thing is he had achieved it. His education, um, a number of remarkable things in it. His first job um, out of graduate school, this you know, remarkable job um, where he had a title, uh, was part of an organization that was well-respected. He had all of the rewards that came with it. But what happened as he was climbing that ladder and enjoying the success is one component of his job involved travel. And he would go to these other meetings uh, or uh, among these, these other people that he was working with that were mostly men. And how did they entertain themselves? Well, in some very inappropriate ways. And he wound up being unfaithful to his wife. And then it was found and his marriage dissolved. Uh, he couldn't work through it, couldn't heal it. And his wife left. And he found that humiliating, shameful, regretful. Now, the interesting thing about his story is um, he didn't get fired. In fact, now, without that responsibility, presumably he'd have more time to devote to work, more freedom to go anywhere he wants. Um, all of the trappings of success were still in his life and and now perhaps, perhaps with greater possibility, except that it's not simply that his life was empty, but, but the things that success offered did nothing to help him with his humiliation, did nothing to heal him with having this tearing apart of his life. And so he still had his education. He still had his title. He still had the promise of his career, but there was nothing in it that satisfied him, that offered hope, nothing that helped him when he really needed help, nothing that helped him in the one area of life for the first time, he experienced a certain kind of failure that he couldn't fix. And that's when he realized this success narrative is not simply falling short, but it's actually offering me nothing. It's actually keeping me from, from what really could have been a good life. And in that moment, that could have gone a bunch of directions, but God gripped him in that moment to take him away from a superficial Christianity to understanding the redemptive narrative, that there was grace for the sinner, but there was also hope. And the hope wasn't that he would now have even more success in a new marriage and family. The hope was that somehow even a failure could have a place in God's kingdom and hope that there would be one day healing and real satisfaction. That turnaround helped expose him to the fact that a success story is not always a redemptive story, even if there's elements of truth in it. And that's what we need to watch out for, which is that, that certain narratives like the success narrative have things that are true. By all means, work hard, be skillful, do the best that you can. If you're rewarded, enjoy your rewards, share it. Um, but that's not what, to, what you bank your life on. Jesus warns us so much about, he redefines success, that if, if your vision of success is um, inherited from the culture around you, if they're naming you, if they're telling you, and uh, defining for you what success looks like, know that that's not redemptive. That's a, that's a troubling and harmful narrative. And so that's one narrative that we see that in this story, there are hints that even with all the success, that's not really ultimately what God is doing. The story doesn't end here, but God is going to do something deeper, a healing that Joseph needs that's more than just having a signet ring and a gold chain and a chariot. So here's the second narrative for us to consider today, the forgetful narrative. Now, I'm using that because of how Joseph names his son. Now, he gives him a Hebrew name. So now this name, uh, look, the success narrative has elements of truth, but it's a definition of success that really needs a lot of work. The forgetful narrative also has elements of truth, but it comes out of 
out of Joseph's story, maybe a bit out of his theology, but but maybe on its own, it's not sufficient. Now I'm talking about his firstborn Manasseh in verses 51 to 52. So now he marries Azanath, he has dignity, and he's set, and he has children, which sort of ancient biblical culture, this is a sign of God's blessing. We don't think about it necessarily that way. Um, but what was the blessing for Joseph? He names him Manasseh for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Uh, see, his hardship was so defining in his life. It wasn't just he went through a rough time, 13 miserable years. That, that this moment wasn't just about material success, but it was about a sense of, of release from his humiliation, the suffering. And we see his desire to forget. And that's something that's true of, of most experiences of suffering. This week, I read about... Um, the pastor of Zion Church in Beijing uh, was arrested. So over the last few years, there have been increasing crackdowns in different regions in China. Uh, he was arrested in the wee hours of the morning, um, taken to prison. And as I was reading the account, it said that he will be in prison for 10 days. And my honest first response was, oh, thank goodness, no big deal, 10 days in prison. You know, you're so, so used to reasoning. There was another pastor in a different region that was put in prison in March is still there. But, you know, you read the news of all these miserable things. And, and the thought was, oh, 10 days in prison. I, I mean, that's not good, but not a huge deal. And then I started thinking about how before I got the second COVID vaccine, I was reading up about all these warnings about you're going to have this headache and you might have chills. And I had this thought, this is going to be a miserable week. having <laughs> the headache and having to write a sermon while I'm feeling tired, all of a sudden made me step back and think, and I thought being in prison for 10 days was no big deal because it's only 10 days. Well, what happens when you get out of prison and then you're laying in bed and thinking, are oh, the police going to show up now in 12 hours? And it was very easy when somebody else suffers to think, oh, that's not a big deal. Um, but when we're experiencing our own suffering, you know, one of the things that becomes a quick priority is for the pain to stop. And so uh, Joseph's suffering was not minor. It was extreme. Any reader should have sympathy to that. But for Joseph's first instinct to say, oh, Lord, <laughs> now this is a sign that I can finally forget. You know, uh, we could be sympathetic with that longing for Joseph, the desire to forget his pain. So that was a good desire, a great moment for Joseph, that he felt finally a certain me measure of moving on, a certain measure of peace. But it raises the question, is forgetting redemptive? Well, it can be. It certainly was for Joseph. Just like success had a redemptive component, but it wasn't fully redemptive narrative. Well, forgetting, you know, it's interesting. He, he says, I want to forget all my hardship. But he also says, and, and I, for, I want to forget all my father's house. Because his hardship was tied to his brothers, uh, to his father's house, to their betrayal. You know, he didn't just suffer randomly and accidentally. They intentionally plotted against him. So uh, his desire to forget was to forget them as well. And the interesting thing is the story doesn't end here. What Joseph does not seem to have any idea is that one day he will see his brothers again. They won't recognize him because now he looks like an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian name, he has an Egyptian robe, a signet ring. But these Hebrews come to him and he sees them, which means that God's story is not that he would forget his household, 
but that he would be freed of the, the pain and that there would be healing. There would be a, a reconciliation and a redemption. God's purpose in this was greater than Joseph could have imagined. And yet for Joseph, it certainly would have been enough to have this moment to say the past is behind me, but, but is the forgetting narrative redemptive? I mean, what does it mean for Joseph to say, the Lord has helped me forget my hardships and my father's household? How could you name your father's household in the same sentence that you claim to have forgotten him? Clearly what he means by forgetting is different than amnesia. He doesn't, he didn't simply, you know, you have those, those situations where somebody tells you a secret or they let you in on some juicy detail. And then they say, you know, we never had this conversation. And your response is something like what conversation, which then confuses the person, the conversation we just had. But what you're saying with what conversation is, is not that you weren't paying attention, but you're affirming when you said, forget this conversation. We never had this conversation. When I say what conversation, you know, I get it. I agree. This is a secret. It's not that I'm going to leave here and forget the story. It's that I'm going to act as though I haven't heard it. It's a, it's a different kind of forgetting. It's a kind of forgetting that says, actually, I'm going to remember this because this is quite interesting, but, but my forgetting is part of my not telling about it. Uh, what did Joseph mean? And I don't know what Joseph mean, meant when he said, I'm naming my son Manasseh because I forgot my hardship and my father's household. Well, he names his father's household. Clearly, he hasn't forgotten his father's household. He still remembers it. There seems to be some kind of forgetting that's not about a wiping out of the memory, but, but, but a, a putting the pain away. But the story is not redemptive because even if he's free of the pain, um, Jacob is a victim in this. Jacob, by no means an innocent person in the Bible, uh, in, in a justice perspective of after what he did to his own brother Esau, you know, you could say maybe he, quote, deserved uh, having him think that his favorite son had died. Um, but this isn't just about Joseph, and it isn't just about his brothers, but, but something wrong was done that left unfixed, unhealed. The longing to say, I just want the pain to go away is a good longing. And if, if nothing gets fixed and the pain goes away, that's progress. That's good. But that longing to forget becomes a problematic narrative because we so want the pain to go away that we want everything associated with the pain to go away as well. And therefore, we have no redemptive imagination. And what happens is because the, the pain is often tied to our identity or our experiences or our lives, wanting the pain to go away so much that we're willing to have everything else go away with it is a wrong kind of forgetting. And it's that sense of despair. You know, here I am thinking about, you know, what, what will the second COVID vaccine do to me? Uh, and I, I remember reading an article a week or two ago about somebody who had COVID and they weren't intubated, but they, they were really a week into splitting headache, complete exhaustion, deliriousness. And what they said is I wanted to die. And I don't know if they meant that literally, but I'm sure in their experience, it's not that I want to die. It's I want to not suffer, but the suffering is so bad that I would accept death in my mind at, at that moment. I want to be free. I want to forget this pain. The pain is so awful that I would get rid of the pain and everything in my experience. And that's not redemptive to be free of pain, but to be free of life. Um, that's a different picture, but it's a tempting picture in the world to say, I want to forget my hardship and the source of it. And God's plan in this is that we would be free of the pain, but that we wouldn't be free of our past and our identity, that somehow the, the redemptive story is not that suffering in our life is good but that somehow God's care for us extends to the fact that he promises to heal his people such that it's not that we ever look back. Sometimes you look back and say, wow, that painful thing, God really used it for good. 
But sometimes you can't make sense of it, but you look back and you say, but in my weakness, somehow God is even more glorified because his story is redemptive. Me and my suffering, me and my pain, me and my failure, me and my regret, me and in whatever it is that makes me think I don't want to be me anymore. Well, that's the forgetting story. That's the success story. That's the implication of the world's narratives. The redemptive story is, but, but God doesn't want to wipe you and your pain out, but God wants to deal with your pain and, and bring healing so that you and your story, it's not that you'll forget, you know, two years of your life, but but somehow those two years of your life won't be painful and won't define you in a harmful way. That is something only God can do. And that's where the biblical story is redemptive in a way that the world's narratives are not. And so here, here's the last narrative that I want to talk about, which is the fruitful narrative. Um, and this, again, gets us what I think is even closer to biblical themes. And, and this comes out of the second name that 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 Hebrew uh, that uh, that Joseph uses in naming Manasseh in verse fifty-two. So so Joseph has two sons. He doesn't give them Egyptian names. He gives them Hebrew names, uh, Manasseh to forget. But Ephraim, his secondborn, says the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So that's Joseph's story. It's still a story that has affliction in the land of my affliction. But God has made me fruitful. And it's that human task from Genesis 2 in the world and all of its goodness, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 3, now there's a curse. Childbearing is going to be painful. Your work, you're going to be sweating. There's going to be thorns. The world is now pained, but but God's good purposes are still there. But as you work them out, it's affliction. It's frustrating. Things don't work out. Joseph says, but in the midst of this land of affliction, I didn't choose to be here. I don't love it, but God has made me fruitful. That, it, that, that the story would have been better without the suffering and the pushback and the pain and the hardship. But what Joseph is acknowledging and naming Ephraim is, but yet here God is bringing blessing into my life in a way that, that he doesn't know that Ephraim becomes the tribe. For the, you know, uh, read the prophet Isaiah, read these other prophets. When, 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 when the, the northern tribes are referred to, they're often called Ephraim. Joseph knows none of this, but he knows that that this tr- troubled past was behind him. And now it's not simply that he's successful. It's not simply that he's free of that pain, but there's been some kind of restoration that, that, that his life is now described as fruitful. So he's having, having children as, as one component of, of it. Um, but, but, you know, one of the things that I, I was re- reflecting on this week is, uh, and there's no answer to this. This is just my, you know, my, my reflecting on the story. Um, when, when the first one was born, why did Joseph then not name him Ephraim? <laughs> why did he not say, well, Lord, you have made me fruitful. And now look at, I'm here and I have a child. And I don't know why, but I can imagine in my own experience, I would be so gripped by my own pain that the first thing that I would notice is, <laughs> is some relief from pain. That, that would probably be the first thing on my mind. But then to see how God is continuing, you know, however long later it was that a second was born, the real realization of fruitfulness. It's fine that he ordered them that name. Again, I don't know that there's any significance to the order of the naming. I was just reflecting on that. But one of the reasons I reflected on that, the order of, of the naming is because I think of, of my priority of wanting to forget. Um, and that's something about the world's narrative that sometimes it sets the problems before you when you think the world is fundamentally problematic and my, my goal is to fight the problems or overcome them and forget. And we forget that, that first there's a vision of what's good. There's fruitfulness. And, and is there a way that fruitfulness and forgetting could come together? Because neither story on its own is sufficient. 
And, and there's this moment that we'll get to in a number of weeks in chapter 48, where, where Jacob winds up meeting his grandchildren. So Jacob, Joseph's father, thinks that Joseph, his beloved firstborn, is dead. That sounds like no big deal. But in the next chapter, when his people are starving and he wants to send his children to Egypt, he says, keep Benjamin here. Benjamin, the other brother of Joseph who was born uh, to, um, uh, to uh, Rachel. Um, clearly, however many years later this was, 15 years, however long it was, uh, now Benjamin is an adult. Jacob still so troubled at the thought that his beloved son is dead. Um, Jacob is not forgotten. You can imagine Jacob's surprise years later when he finds out Joseph is alive. So then you get to Genesis 48, and it's not just Joseph, but Joseph's children, where Jacob says, I am making your children my children. So you read the account of the 12 tribes, because Levi is, a, is the priestly line and doesn't get counted in the same way. Joseph is not named, but Ephraim and Manasseh are with the other sons of Jacob. Jacob makes Joseph's children one of his, or two of his. And, and then he's going to bless them, because Joseph's family will bring blessing in the biblical story in a big way. But the interesting thing about the story is Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh to his, his father who's old and losing his sight and about to die and about to bless all of his children. And Jacob crosses his hands. And the firstborn, Manasseh, is supposed to receive the greater blessing. But in blessing them with his hands crossed, Joseph becomes concerned. Dad, you've got the, you've got the wrong order here. Manasseh is supposed to get the fuller blessing. And Jacob, who had just recounted the promises to Abraham about how his descendants would be fruitful, yes, Manasseh has blessing too. But Ephraim, there's a special fruitfulness that now goes with his name. There will be a, a fruitfulness that comes out of Ephraim that Jacob didn't know, that Jacob didn't realize he would see a grandson, that Joseph didn't know, that his own father would bless him. But there's something in that mixing up. And again, I don't know exactly uh, what, why that was done, the significance in terms of the narrative, but there is this picture of Joseph saying, the first thing is to forget my hardship, and then I'll take fruitfulness if it comes. And there's this restoration as the family comes together where, where Jacob seems to say the future of our people is about fruitfulness. And yet the reality is with that comes a kind of reconciliation that also helps us forget our bitterness and the hardship. And it's in that sense, this weird action helps us recognize the true redemptive story when Jesus comes, uh, the descendant of Jacob, uh, who comes to fulfill all things, who comes to announce to us um, a, a, a redefined version of success, a kingdom that's not like this world. And he redefines success and promises blessing. And Jesus who comes and says, not that you will be forgotten, but that there is a forgetting that's part of your story. And it's, it's a forgetting of your humiliation and your shame. It's a it's a forgetting of your sins, but it's a remembering of you. And, and it is about an invitation to, to fruitfulness and, and a life in the spirit that reaches its climax in, in a crossing over where, where Jesus, the, the one with honor and power and glory and wisdom and dignity, winds up being placed upon the cross where sinners are meant to be punished and humiliated. And human beings are meant to look at that cross and to say, but, but I'm the failure. I'm the one in pain. I'm the one with this hardship. I'm the one that can't figure out how to get right with God or this world. And there's this crossing over that God does where he says, first of all, I will remember you, but I will forget your sins as Jesus bears the weight of them. 
and he cries out in forsakenness. But then in the spirit that Jesus gives up, it will be poured out into you so that you who live by that spirit now have life in you. And what we're told in Galatians is don't live anymore by the old patterns, by the flesh, but, but walk in the spirit so that you will bear fruit of joy, peace, patience, these various fruits that are part of a life that God has redeemed. And it's that narrative that says, yes, success is good, but success as our world defines it is problematic. And forgetting, forgetting is important, but, but it's not about forgetting us and our stories. And fruitfulness is good, but fruitfulness on its own, we can't, we can't do these things. God, God takes these true elements and he weaves them together in a story in Joseph's life that gives us a picture that says, now God is doing this bigger thing in the Bible, and, and you don't need to be Joseph. You don't need to be the most talented person. You don't need to be the silver medal winner or the gold medal winner. Um, Joseph went before for the salvation of his people. That becomes the picture of Jesus, who is the great, the one at the right hand of the Father. But what we're told is that if you understand the, the redemptive nature of that story, then there is a redemptive forgetting of your pain and your humiliation but not you and your life and what you've experienced. There's healing. There's not, uh, there's not a breaking off from this world, but there's a, a renewal. And there's fruitfulness, a, a future that in God's presence will have joy. And it's not that you'll just exist having forgotten the miseries, but, but there's a being made right, which then the picture of eternal life is not just floating around free of suffering, but, but there's a restoring of, of who we were meant to be as humanity. And in that sense, the Bible does promise prosperity and success. It may not be with a title. It may not be with a firm. It may not be uh, with good looks or physical health or all of these things. There's a redefined vision of prospering that we're told is uniquely redemptive. It only comes from Jesus who accomplishes it and then disciples us, explains it to us. And what we're told is you're invited into that story, that redemptive story. You, with all of your wonderful attributes, um, but with you and all your failings and all of your mess and all, your, all of your pain and all of your regret, Jesus presents the one story that says you, the whole of you, the truth of you, are invited. You're welcomed not to be come in and made an example of, of what not to do, but, but to be redeemed and restored and to be healed. The Bible is not about amputation. We don't want to cut off. So the wheat and the weeds, God doesn't just go around pulling out the weeds. God is in the business of making sure that the wheat grows to a harvest. He wants to pour out his spirit in your life so that, that you would make that progress, that you would grow. And so what we're told is live with a whole different orientation, live in a different narrative and understand that, that the invitation to come of Christ is to come as you are, to come as you've been, to come with your story and to receive grace and to receive healing and to be given the possibility of new life, not instantly perfect life. We live in a world with wheat and weeds, but fruitful life. A life where if you hold fast to walk in the spirit, Jesus says you will, you will see that the story of your life is a greater story if it's connected to the story of Christ. So look there, friends. That's my encouragement for this week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come here believing many things, uh, a lot of true things, but a lot of confused and insufficient things, and we believe a lot of problematic things. Uh, the corruption has overtaken us so that that maybe even good things have, have, um, have confused us so much that we are being harmed or harming others. Lord, redeem us. We want that reconciliation. We want that freedom. We, we want our pain behind us. We don't want to be agents of pain and confusion. We want to be uh, shining the light of Christ. We want that story of what Jesus uniquely promises and accomplishes to become more of our story and to become more of the world's story.
So Lord, do that in us. I pray for for those here um, who are assembled to grow in grace and the knowledge of your ways, to experience healing, to remember properly and to forget properly, to succeed in what is truly success, but to have lives that are fruitful, not just in the future, but now that we would grow in the power of your spirit. Lord, help us in our weakness and our struggling and our discouragement. Help us to go into our discouraged world telling that story, bearing witness to it, living that story so that our lives would bear a fruit, not just in our own joy, but in bringing honor to you um, by showing the world a better story. So Lord, we confess that that, uh, we are not doing that. Our church is not doing that as we ought, but we long that you would be doing that in us and in our church and in our city and in our world. So help us with that uh, and bless your church in the world and bless us this week. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.